Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. In this episode, we're talking about food sovereignty and imagining utopias around what food sovereignty looks like in a post-capitalist state. Dr. Brian Dale is a faculty member at Bishop's University's Environment and Geography program. There, he focuses on food sovereignty, institutionalizing ecological farming, and agroecology practice in a capitalist setting. We have a great conversation discussing what it looks like to try to imagine a more resilient world in which our communities are framed within an agroecological understanding. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So, Brian, thanks for taking some time to chat with us. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, so, right now I'm speaking to you from Sherbrooke, Quebec, Canada, which is uh, Abenaki territory. I'm a relatively new arrival to this area. So, I am now teaching at Bishop's University, which is an Anglophone uh, university in Quebec. And uh, I started with Bishop's this summer. So, um, it's uh, with the Environment and Geography Department, and um, we have a lot of exciting things going on, which I'd be happy to chat about if you'd like, but uh, we have a new uh, sustainable agriculture and food systems program and uh, an educational farm, which is uh, 140 acres. So um, for the, the department and folks involved in the program, there's a big, uh, big playground um, that we're working with in terms of research and uh, teaching and such. Before Bishops, though, I was uh, doing a postdoc, a postdoctoral fellowship with the University of Toronto Scarborough, um, and that was um, a project specifically I was involved with, Dr. Joe Sharma, called Feeding the City, Pandemic and Beyond. And prior to that, I did um, a PhD in human geography at the University of Toronto, where I was looking at um, issues around uh, climate change and food sovereignty and agroecology. Yeah, it's an interesting triangulation of those things. And actually, I, I'm so jealous of you that you have this like little, essentially, like you said, a playground to try stuff out and to integrate a lot of these ideas into. One of the terms that you use in particular, agroecology, is not very popular here in the United States. I don't know if it is over there at all, but um, I think it's a really good term that once I found it, I was like, okay, that's the term I've been trying to figure out that I think at least here in the United States, a lot of people use the term permaculture, and that has its own implications and I think shortfalls in terms of that versus agroecology. So I started reading some of your work and I was like, oh, this makes so much sense and articulates a lot of the concerns I had had and highlights a couple of issues and thoughts that you know hadn't even occurred to me. So I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about agroecology and then what you're talking about specifically with this idea of food sovereignty in Canada. Sure. So first of all, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that agroecology is necessarily a lot more popular in Canada by any means. I think that it's still quite an emerging uh, concept. And that's, you know, part of the reason I'm talking about it is because I think that it, there's a lot of value in using this concept. So like in the States, I mean, people use different terms here, including, you know, farmers themselves when they're talking about the way that they the, the practices they use on their farms and such. Of course, organic is popular. People use broader terms like ecological farming. And, and I do, you know, use that as kind of a catch-all phrase too. Uh, there's specific kind of uh, trends around biodynamic farming, permaculture, regenerative agriculture. So, I mean, a lot of these concepts overlap, um, but I feel like what agroecology often does more so than, than some of the others is it kind of zooms out a bit and agroecology looks at food systems more broadly and how an on-farm system, on-farm 
ecosystem functioning essentially has to work, you know, effectively and try to, you know, limit external inputs and that kind of thing and close ecological loops, um, which is consistent with a lot of those other terms I just mentioned. But agroecology also links up in many ways with and, and overlaps with food sovereignty if it's, if it's interpreted, interpreted effectively. So it um, thinks about not just, you know, closing ecological loops, but closing economic loops, thinking about more just food systems. Um, and so there's a whole mo- social movement dimension to agroecology. Um, that, as you know, some academics talk about the fact that you know it, agroecology be, can be seen as on-farm practices. Another pillar is you know agroecology as a science, which has been ongoing since uh, around the 1920s. But then also as this you know the social movement dimensions of it. So if you bring those those things together, that's kind of effectively when you know you hit the sweet spot of agroecology. Uh, and so that's uh, in many ways kind of how there's overlaps with food sovereignty and how agroecology kind of does does more than some of those other concepts. Well said. So as somebody that is very focused on this idea of food sovereignty as a necessary catalyst for sustainable, I don't even want to say food waste, but just sustainability, like our ability to continue existing on the earth without destroying it anymore. That process, I think, is inherently political. And I think might explain some of the pushback that might exist around the term agroecology. Not that necessarily there has been pushback, but I think maybe why terms like permaculture have continued to flourish is because it can be it can be understood under a multitude of lenses for better or worse. Whereas once you tie in these ideas of food sovereignty and justice, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. So you had actually written a piece, or you were one of the writers for a piece called Visions of the Food System to Come, which is a utopian vision for a better future. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to do as we try to paint these types of pictures of what, well, in that process of painting pictures, we're providing an alternative to the way we live and the past, uh, which I, I think sometimes is sometimes can be a little distracting, but oftentimes like what you're doing is actually really important because the right can always point to like the 1950s or something, say we want to go back to that. And people, at least white people will generally say those were better times. And we don't have that as an alternative. We can't really point to a time and say, hey, this was better. So the only thing we can do is do more of this utopian type work and say, this is what we envision. It has to be pragmatic and based in something that people can really grapple with and visualize. And I think that piece does that. So could you talk a little bit about it? Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. Um, So Visions of the Food System to Come was a report that we finished in the springtime, uh, so April 2021. The full title of it is, let me just pull it up here, I've got it. Uh, so Visions of the Food System to Come, Agriculture, Eating, and Ecological Justice in 2050. And I, I say the full title in part because, you know, that we were kind of projecting ourselves out in 2050. And I say we because I worked on this with some students who did uh, excellent research and writing uh, for the report, um, three students from the University of Toronto Scarborough, University of Toronto more broadly. And uh, we were trying to think about how, you know, the pandemic could give us collectively, not just us in the, in the team, but, you know, how in many ways already the pandemic was forcing us to kind of sit back and reevaluate our food system, right? Suddenly there was a big focus on, you know, what is, what is essential um, in, in, in 
and how food systems are a big part of that, but also how many people were pointing to how food systems contributed to not just the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but the COVID-19 pandemic as uh, the latest in a whole string of these zoonotic diseases that have been emerging because of uh, largely how we're practicing industrial monocultural agriculture um, and encroaching onto wild spaces um, where we haven't been you know, before. So we were trying to, you know, I think, you know, write something that was based in research, but also would be interesting for people to check out more broadly, not just, you know, researchers, because often you prepare um, academic articles and they're behind paywalls and they're hard to access and things like that. And so we thought, okay, part of the, actually the initiative of the Feeding uh, the City project was to, to have it as more of a public facing project and to document what was going on, um, especially in the in kind of Toronto and Ontario's context around food and food system changes um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, but we wanted to, to, you know, document, you know, some of the advocacy and some of the changes and struggles that were happening through COVID-19. So if people want to see the report, it's at feedingcity.org um, under our resources section. But um, we, we essentially were, um, you know, trying to, you know, to go back to what we were talking about around kind of the ideas around agroecology and food sovereignty, tie together some of these ideas in a way where the narrator is speaking from the position of, okay, the way things have changed in 2050. And essentially what we were trying to document is a lot of these, you know, really good ideas around food system change that can be complementary and, and, and link up together uh, from a whole bunch of different perspectives, right? Not instead of thinking about things in isolation, uh, think about how things are, are related. And often, you know, when we talk about things like permaculture, regenerative farming, um, organic farming, you know, those mean something to, to people farming uh, and farmers are busy, <laughs> you know, doing a lot of work trying to make ends meet and such. But, you know, often, you know, especially consumers, people who are not involved with food production, which is the majority of the population in North America, they only understand things in a very limited limited way, which you know allows for things like you know industrial organics to proliferate and corporate retail to just capitalize on these things. So we wanted to have this conversation around. I won't go into details, but we talk about land relations, about trade, about knowledge production, and how that needs to change uh, at various different levels if we're going to have a more ecological food food system and agricultural system governance. Uh, labor issues, social economies. So we, we go over um, in each chapter, kind of we try to chunk it out and, and take, take on a different topic and, and demonstrate how these things can be connected from the perspective of uh, the narrator is uh, someone who's farming in kind of a collective um, approach uh, at a farm and uh, thinking about all of these changes and how they've been, how they've been made possible. Yeah, one of the things I think that stood out to me is you go through all these things that you're talking about, these different chapters and these different observations about how things need to change. And the narrator is very accepting of the fact that it's not a final solution. There's still work to be done. And I think that's really important to understand that we don't need to have all the answers. We just have to have a good framework. We can't predict everything that's going to happen as we try to make things better. We've lost thousands of years of knowledge in terms of sustainable foodways. And this is just that first step. And in it, you talk a bit about like food sovereignty within the context of land back and, you know, the, how do indigenous people uh, reclaim uh, rightful ownership of land and that it is a messy and complicated topic. And while on the internet, it's easy to just be like XYZ, this is the solution and, you know, get those woke points or whatever. It, it's far more complicated than that. And even in those scenarios, it assumes that everyone's on the same page for that to happen. And the reality is that this vision of the food system to come 
isn't just for people that are like-minded politically. And I, I think it's really easy to get caught up in that echo chamber and to just erase those people that we don't agree with. And uh, I, I think it does a really good job of trying to pair all of those nuances together in a really useful visionary perspective. Thanks. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, it was part of what inspired us is some of the conversations around um, uh, real utopias. You know, that's a theoretical perspective that Eric Olin Wright um, and others uh, have been, well, were, were pushing forward and, and have been pushing forward. I think that the, the thing about utopian thinking is often that um, people, you know, assume that it's idealistic or utopia in general has a, a bad name in part because um, you know, they associate the actual term with the idea of there being no place uh, with from, from utopia when, you know, utopia in terms of the, the origin of the term could actually mean like good place. And so, you know, when people point to things that have worked in specific places, those real utopias are sources of inspiration. And so I think that it's, you know, one of the things that's inspiring about thinking through this is, you know, they're, they're, it, in, a, in a way, it provides kind of an in so that people understand that you don't just have to think about changing the whole system outright. You can realize that people are already changing the system. In some ways, it's just a matter of replicating things that are already working. Um, and there's all kinds of different examples of that. But, but you know, when I've talked to farmers and, and others about what kind of system change might look like, it's an overwhelming kind of <laughs> proposal, right? When, when you have the idea of yeah. system change or thinking about specifically thinking about, oh, well, what, what would re replace the capitalist system if we were to challenge capitalism as a system? It's overwhelming. So, you know, there's feminist Marxists and others who have, you know, kind of documented the fact that we don't need to just think about, you know, revolution as like, or something that's, you know, quite dramatic and, and maybe violent as like the only uh, way to bring about change. Not to say that a lot of the tensions and a lot of the challenges are going to be easy to overcome, but I'm glad you highlighted the fact that, you know, it is a process and people have written about how a utopianism of, of process is so important that it's not just about those end goals. So even in writing this, as we, as you'll see, if you look at the report in the introduction, we mentioned that we welcome comments that we would be happy to revise the report moving forward. And based on people's feedback, if we've made mistakes, you know, we're not perfect. We, we're happy to incorporate other things or other perspectives. And so there's a, a Google form on the website and there's an email address that people can contact uh, us with ideas about kind of how to change things up and improve upon things. So even we thought, okay, in, in writing this, you know, this can be a process itself, right? And envisioning these, these real utopias. Yeah, it's funny. It, what popped up into my head as you were talking about that is a couple of friends I know, and I'm in my 30s, that unabashedly hated like Richard Wolf for like cooperatives uh, in their like late teens, early 20s. Now are like, you know what? I, I get it now. And it's like that growth of like the purity versus like the pragmatism and trying to find that common ground of saying, all right, we're not going to have that revolution. Or if we do, we, we don't really want to. And in that process, there is that whole idea of, all right, well, what about everyone who doesn't agree with us? Mm -hmm. You know, the cooperative models and things like that, even if they might not be my personal ideal, they're an incredibly necessary and useful tool for helping imagine a different way of living. And, uh, you know, that, that can be a really good first step. Yeah, and I think in some ways, if you kind of combine the practical steps to, you know, doing things differently with kind of a broader analysis uh, of what system change needs to be, 
and, and keeping those things in tension, then, you know, that can drive change as opposed to just saying it's got to be one or the other, right? If you just say, oh, no, we, we yeah. can't pursue incrementalism, we can't pursue kind of like uh, things like cooperatives or other things that might just be kind of isolated. And, and you know, we need to think about broader scale change or more structural change. Um, you know, you can do one while having an eye on the structural change that needs to happen. But I think if you if you don't act and you only keep your or you only keep discussing uh, the structural change, then you're not demonstrating, you know, what else is, is possible. Right. So yes, that's, you know, that's true broadly, but I think, um, you know, the, the food system is a good kind of inroad to like think about system change because it touches on so many different aspects of life and some of the most essential things because it's about feeding ourselves. <laughs> and it's the agroecology is grounded in mutualism, essentially, a mutualist relationship with the environment around us. Yep. And if, and, and if people interpret it effectively, then, you know, mutual approaches to making sure that there's community, community well-being and such, as opposed to just saying, okay, well, this is great what we're doing. We've got, you know, people signed up to a community-supported agriculture culture program, but that's the end of it as opposed to tackling broader issues around um, fair labor uh, practices and so on. Bringing up fair labor, I do want to talk a little bit about how here, like in the center of the storm of capitalism in North America, uh, it's really easy to think about, you know, a lot of these projects that we're talking about, regenerative farming and permaculture as offering solutions that haven't really been thought of before. You've covered La Via Campesina quite a bit in your work. Could you speak a little bit about this for folks not familiar with the organization? Sure. Um, so La Via Campesina, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's uh, what, what some people have described as the largest social movement in the world. Uh, it is a, a grouping or a network uh, or a movement of uh, largely peasants and small-scale farmers, although over the years they've expanded that definition to include uh, indigenous peoples, fisher folk. When people talk about it as being one of the largest social movements in the world, if not the largest social movement in the world, it encompasses a lot of people and a lot of different kinds of people. Um, La Via Campesina has 182 member organizations that are located in 81 different countries. And this keeps expanding when they have international conferences and bring on new members. So people don't sign up as individuals, but rather as member organizations. So if I recall, there's, I believe, four member organizations in the United States. Two in Canada are two that I focused on with my uh, PhD research and I'm still uh, doing some work with. So in Canada, it's the National Farmers Union, which is across the country, and Union Paysanne, which is based in, in Quebec, where I am. And uh, La Via Campesina really has been kind of pushing the conversation forward on food sovereignty since it was formed in the early 90s. It's, it's also making sure that people understand what these links are between food sovereignty and agroecology. Because, you know, you've got the United Nations, FAO, and other people who are starting to talk about agroecology, but they're making sure that these terms aren't watered down or misinterpreted or co-opted. And that's ongoing work that they're doing. So there's a quote from Olavia Campesina representative that I often go back to, and that is that I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it's without agroecology, food sovereignty is a slogan. And without food sovereignty, agroecology is a technology. And that's especially true when people sometimes can interpret food sovereignty as just meaning like eating locally or, you know, agroecology is strictly being about the science of agroecology or the on-farm practices. And so, yeah, La Via Campesina is active around the world. Um, they had a, a delegation that was just at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, I know some farmers from, from Canada were there as part of that and, you know, making sure that they were calling out the false solutions, uh, especially those that pertain to climate change, um, so-called solutions and agriculture and the food system. Um, so, yeah, La Via Campesina kind of was partially what inspired me to, to get working on some of these issues that link climate change and system change uh, around our food system. So they're, they're really inspiring, and I believe it's via campesina.org if, if people want to check them out. 
Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. They're one of these organizations that I wasn't really familiar with until maybe a couple of years ago, despite being around the permaculture and regenerative agriculture movement for like 15 years, which I, again, I think speaks to the point that I made earlier that those terms aren't usually fully cohesive and easily manipulated because they, they've become very apolitical. And what they're doing uh, with La Via Campesina is really helpful in not only decentering the anti-capitalist agricultural, agroecological praxis outside of the U.S. It's also really helpful in understanding how to organize in spaces that here in the U.S. and Canada might not seem really ready or likely to have that radical change that, that we're talking about. And while I might disagree with that, because I, th- I think with the right terminology, a lot of these ideas are really accessible. And it's something I, I know you did a, a series of interviews for some research. And I think uh, you probably agree based on what I read from those interviews that there's definitely a thread that people get as long as you use the right words. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that research and your thoughts on why radical foodways haven't really taken root in a lot of rural communities. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was one of the most interesting parts of this research that I was doing over the span of a few years and talking to farmers and visiting farms, because I was talking to them about what some of the discourses that La Via Campesina or the, uh, yeah, the, you know, I would say discourses that they bring forward around the need for food sovereignty and how in order to have food sovereignty, we need system change. But a lot of La Via Campesina members are quite open to critiquing capitalism outright and saying that's what system change means. You know, you can't have food sovereignty <laughs> within the capitalist system and, and so on. Uh, and by, you know, by extension of that, then you can't have agroecology within a capitalist system as well, if you're, if you're going to, you know, be true to, you know, what these, what these terms really should be about. And so when I talked to farmers about that in the Canadian context, I got, you know, mixed uh, responses um, and there's a lot of good reasons for there to be kind of some hesitation, I think, around just, you know, embracing an anti-capitalist politics, you know, and, and that's part of the reason that, you know, when we, when we wrote this report on visions of the food system to come and, you know, in a way that's talking about system change, but it's doing it without kind of hit, hitting people over the head with kind of a, here's our anti-capitalist <laughs> platform or, or uh, you know, manifesto or whatever. And, uh, and part of that is because of, I guess, to use Gramscian ter- terminology, I, I always go to the, the work of Gram- Antonio Gramsci in my, in my own writing, or often, at least. Um, you know, we've, we've grown up, uh, many of us within the North American context, with a mainstream education system that is uh, certainly not critiquing capitalism. And if anything, it is, um, you know, pointing a finger at any alternatives as being not possible or anti-democratic, whereas, you know, capitalism is associated with democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I talk to farmers, you know, sometimes I, I got responses from them, like suggesting that, okay, the only alternative to capitalism is communism. And that means lineups at the grocery store and big state farms where you have, have no autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, you know, you don't get to own your own toothbrush <laughs> or toothbrush or whatever. And so, um, you know, it was really interesting to hear farmers kind of reflect on that. Whereas, you know, at the same time, though, I mean, you had farmers who were involved with La Via Campesina organizing and had been to these international conferences and had and are, are quite open to critiques of capitalism. But at the same time, even those farmers are saying, OK, well, we also have to talk about what the alternatives are and how we get there. If we're thinking about food system transformation and transformation more broadly, you know, what does this mean for me when I have to pay a mortgage or rent or whatever else? Um, when I'm, you know, worried about the fact that, you know, I've got, I'm deeply indebted in my farm. Uh, I still need to be purchasing seeds externally, whatever it might be. People have very practical concerns. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, this speaks to the need for, you know, some kind of radical pedagogy or radical education around, you know, what is it to understand capitalism and also what is it to understand what the possible alternatives are. And sometimes we get caught up in these, this way of thinking where we assume that all of the alternatives have been tried and they've all failed miserably. <laughs> which we also have to appreciate is true in some ways that a lot of the alternatives have failed, um, you know, in part because of, you know, geopolitics and imperialism and such too. But, you know, we have to, you know, do better than we've done in the past, uh, you know, build uh, alternatives and, uh, and work um, against capitalism and show that, you know, progression is possible without, um, make sure that there's, a, you know, essentially a just transition that's possible and demonstrate that that, that is uh, not unrealistic, you know, without, you know, compromising on some of the things that people enjoy, like, importing food, uh, you know, <laughs> having a certain quality of life, you know, having access to do the things that they want to do, including farming and food production, if they're farmers we're talking about. So there's a lot um, going on there, but um, it was it was a lot of fun kind of, you know, doing that research and, and reflecting on that as I, uh, as I spoke with farmers. Yeah, I think that was the really interesting part for me was the conversations around people that would admit the failures of capitalism. Like a part of me was reading it and just being like, I just want you to understand that markets don't equate capitalism and that like smashing that first, I feel like a lot of times is like, okay, once you've disconnected from capitalism, as in the very vulgar understanding of it and the, the investment component, it opens up people to those conversations of what are the alternatives. I think personally, I, I'm of the belief that like, it's not my place to tell people what's right and wrong, but to just make them aware of what the alternatives are and let those communities decide what's best for them. And that, you know, again, there's so many people that are very clear in their understanding that what's work, what, what exists today doesn't work. And just painting a possibility of what else could be is really powerful. I, I was reading those, that uh, research piece next to the utopian piece was really like interesting together. I think like uh, I got a little bit more out of it from reading those back to back. And it's just like one of those things that just really stood out to me and I think opens the door for a lot of possibilities and taking their lived experiences to try to figure out a new way forward. Yeah, thanks. I mean, um, it's about starting from where people are in many ways, right? And I think that I, I talk in uh, a couple of uh, these articles that I've written recently about um, Antonio Gramsci's thinking, which, uh, you know, he was interested in kind of thinking about uh, education and, you know, counter hegemonic change through education, and not just kind of mainstream education, but political education as well. And I talk about um, thinkers like Paulo Freire, who, who came after, who also, you know, kind of espouse some of these ideas. But when you talk about starting where people are, I mean, that means 
making sure that you're sensitive to people's lived experiences and you know where where they're coming from and that you know people are going to lean towards uh, solutions based on kind of what seems to be natural to them or what seems to be kind of possible for them and of course you know sometimes that that needs some you know you need to challenge some of those assumptions but you know that you need to do it in kind of a delicate way right in many, in many cases if you're going to actually you know try to build some kind of movement or have you know a real process or a real conversation and of course, it's not to say that um, you know you or I or anyone else is is an expert and has all the answers, right? Like as we were saying about things being a process, um, you know, you have to work through those those conversations. And I think that um, you know, even thinking about uh, another theme that came up in that one article we we're just talking about, you know, that the idea that capitalism can be reformed, um, and that is uh, that's a that's something that a lot of you know nonprofit organizations, etc., like you know, people are pushing for that at so many different levels, and that's what a lot of our uh, kind of food system solutions and things point at if you know apart from just individualized consumption responsible consumption or whatever a lot of people focus on okay well let's try to make sure that we have better policies from our government and so on as opposed to how do we make sure that we don't have an <laughs> uh, an anti how do, how do we make sure we don't have just you know a, a perpetuation of this kind of structurally racist colonial kind of system of government uh, governance or government that we have existing right how do we change things more broadly those things have to happen, I think, through conversations and processes and beginning uh, from from where people are at in terms of their own kind of lived realities, right? Yeah. And I always kind of fall back as somebody that does spend a lot of time in farmer communities and working with farmers that it comes down very often to the language and the perception. And, you know, a lot of things can become very accessible to people that might be completely on the other end of the spectrum. For example, the one example I always tend to use is talk to farmers or tradesmen or whatever and be like, well, when I was a kid, like usually boomers, and uh, they'll say, when I was a kid, it used to be really cold around here. It wasn't like this. And I'm like, yeah, if you don't use the word climate change, they're already telling you that they see the difference. But the second you say climate change, then they're like, no, it's not that. It just used to be colder. And it's like, well, what, what, what do you think that is? And they don't want to go through that mental gymnastics of accepting that they They've been wrong about this very politicized topic. But again, much like your research, a lot of people would very explicitly point out the failures of capitalism in terms of making their livelihood sustainable or even just like taking care of their community. And a lot of folks would talk about the importance of that community while also then not being able to fully shake the idea of capitalism, which is very explicitly like outside people investing money and, you know, manipulating through money and all of these things that are by definition, the antithesis of their values around their community and resilience and sustainability. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this really does come down to utilizing the right language and making it accessible. That's something I think we need to do a better job on the left. And to circle back to La Via Campesina, one of the things that I think is interesting about how they've placed themselves as something that's really hard to imagine existing in the United States. And of course, there's a whole conversation that could be had about why that is. Although I, I, I am curious, so you, you've worked with them in Canada. What was your experience with that? With La Via Campesina's member organizations here? Yeah, like how how did that relate to uh, like the politics that we're talking about, and did they approach it in a different way, or was it already like predisposed people to this type of politics? Well, as I mentioned, the two member organizations of La Via Campesina in Canada are the National Farmers Union, which has has members from BC to the Maritimes, so across the country, and uh, Union Paysana is focused here in Quebec, and so it's a smaller organization. 
both um, Union Faisan and, and uh, the NFU have what are called, uh, well, non, have non-farmer memberships. So I'm a non-farmer member of both organizations, an associate member of the NFU and a membre citoyen or citizen member of uh, Union Faisan. Part of, as I was, you know, have been doing research and thinking about food sovereignty in Canada, I mean, I've wanted to be involved with these organizations to contribute beyond my research, but then also to understand their struggles as well. So, you know, my involvement with those two organizations have been kind of, uh, well, at, at different levels and in terms of different committees, like different geographic levels. I've been involved with the NFU quite locally when I was living in uh, in Toronto. Um, but then they also have an international committee, um, uh, Migrant Worker Solidarity Committee, and a um, Indigenous Solidarity Working Group, for example. So there's a lot of interesting things going on within both organizations. And now that I'm in Quebec, it's easier to um, <laughs> to participate in Union Piazan's activities. So, I mean, I I would say that um, I've had conversations with farmers who are members of these organizations and then farmers who are not members of these organizations. But what's interesting in many ways is how, um, you know, both Union Paysan and the NFU are grappling with some of these tensions around, in many ways, recognizing the need for real systemic changes, but then also trying to see what they can push for and get done with, um, you know, the, the relative power that they, they have or voice that they have um, in terms of policy and such, right? And I should mention that both of these, without getting into too many details, both organizations are fairly marginal. There are larger, more mainstream agricultural organizations that represent more farmers and also more, more mainstream farmers uh, or more so-called conventional farmers. But even within, like, say, the NFU, which is across the country, I mean, there are large farmers who are members of the NFU, you know, with thousands of acres uh, out in the prairies and such. And there's a lot of ideological diversity. And so, you know, this has only kind of deepened my appreciation of kind of thinking about how these things operate when we talk about system change and how we think about kind of education or political education, starting from where people are thinking about policy change in the context where it seems like incrementalism is the is the best that could be ac- accomplished uh, within the Canadian context and also at different provincial levels. So yeah, it's kind of, I guess I would say I've been, you know, really appreciating what that, what that diversity means and what it means to effectively listen, like the importance of effectively listening to people in terms of their lived realities. Because I mean, I'm not a farmer. Uh, I grew up in the city. And, um, and so one of the most important things for me to appreciate is that I'm not some know-it-all just because I you know, have done some reading about capitalism or political economy or, or, or climate change and system change or whatever it might be, right? There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of built-in wisdom among farmers who are part of these organizations. And to go back to something you were just saying, I mean, uh, as you were kind of leading into that question, I was thinking about, you know, some conversations I had with folks where your example about talking about climate change, but not using the words climate change. Antonio Gramsci, uh, when he talks about hegemony, he talks about common sense, which is what what he would call as being, you know, quite consistent with the dominant hegemony, right? Um, And so we could give all kinds of examples of, of what that would be. But what he stresses is that there's also what he calls good sense. And there's kind of a a potential for counter hegemony, even though he didn't use that term, there's a potential for counter hegemony or good sense within the common sense. Uh, And so if you're talking about weather changes and how, you know, it's, you know, your weather patterns have been changing over time and how you're seeing these patterns increasingly and, you know, repeating themselves and such, uh, you know, that's an inroad to, you know, possible other solutions. Uh, When we talk about, um, you know, policy change, you've got some people who are, you know, very much dedicated to thinking about policy change and and maybe even you know deliberately incrementalist approaches as the best strategy 
And then you've got some people, including within like the NFU and Union Paysan, who would say, forget the government, like, you know, we just need to, you know, do things our own way. And there's wisdom in, there's wisdom in both, right? There's good sense in, in, in both, but uh, you need to kind of start with that listening in those conversations, I think, to tease out, okay, well, you know, how do we make sure that uh, we appreciate that, you know, sometimes government bureaucracy gets in the way, and that's absolutely true. And sometimes the government is, is not out to, you know, do anything really in uh, the favor of farmers who are struggling against climate change and for livelihoods and social justice and so on. When, you know, we've had in the Canadian context, and there's obviously similar patterns that's happened in the US where it's policy changes and such that have led to the, the food system that we have right now that's dominated by corporations and industrial agriculture. So teasing out some of those um, kind of sentiments, uh, those feelings that people have and understanding where they're com- coming from, I think is important because, you know, there's a lot of truth or, or, or as I said, good sense within uh, some of those common sense ideas where uh, you, you can think about maybe, even though, of course, people who argue for policy change as a way to drive things and, 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 and drive uh, more systemic changes. Yeah, policy change can, I agree with the sentiment also that policy change can be quite instrumental in changing things if it's done right. Uh, but you kind of have to pair those two things up, right? How do you make sure that, you know, you're going to have some kind of policy change approaches without, you know, just, you know, relying on things as they've been, as they've been done and appreciate that in some cases, the, the bureaucracy is going to get in the way. So how do we, how do we think about policies or demonstrating policies through like what we we're talking about, real utopias and such, right? How do you kind of blend some of these things um, as you're, you know, linking up kind of political education and thinking about structural changes and not just kind of zeroing in on, okay, what, what are the exact laws that need to change in this particular context? And can we only just, you know, push the needle a tiny little bit? Yeah. And I think to pair with that, it also gives us the opportunity as through that political discourse of pointing to those policy changes and how very often policy changes will end up being you know, a shortfall to what we imagine they'll be. And being able to point to that and seeing, see, it's a systemic issue. There's no real incrementalism that's going to fix the systemic problems of capitalism. And I think that whole process in itself can also be a necessary part of that, that education I'd really love to actually just know a little bit more about how, I guess, like how to build these types of movements in places where the politics aren't what we want. Like if I were to say today and we wanted to start an organization in the U.S. that was left-leaning in rural communities with farmers, what is the, the magic fix in that process to change those politics? And I know there's no answer, but I feel like uh, what Livia Campesina is doing is kind of providing, a, it might be in very, very broad strokes because obviously the conditions are so different in most of the countries where they're organizing, but to kind of figure out what that formula is and how that can be not necessarily replicated, but understood the basic components so that it could be similarly made here in North America. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's really an answer and I'm not really asking you. It's more rhetorical, I guess, because that like fix, fix rural capitalism. <laughs> That's all. I will say that, you know, what La Via Campesina in many ways offers is kind of this built in political education for people that are involved or exposed to kind of what they're struggling for as an international movement. And part of this is about understanding, you know, the importance of solidarity and international solidarity and how our food system can't just happen in an isolated context in the in the context of Quebec or New England or Canada or the US or whatever that um, you know we need to think about these struggles in relational ways and that they happen at, at different scales 
you know, you mentioned about kind of left uh, politics and some of the things that constrain that. You know, there's a lot to be said for organizing around food and better food systems as an organizing principle because it touches on so many different things around environmental justice and climate justice and, and so on and so forth. And I think that if, um, you know, rather than like having those, you know, strategic conversations around the need for system change and capitalism and the problems associated with it and the possibilities for other, you know, ways forward. All of those things I think can happen, but sometimes, you know, the best way to start is but to say like, okay, well, how do we, how do we change the food system? Um, how do we organize around that as a principle because it affects so many different things and also make sure that you're not forgetting to talk about the solutions that are, that are possible, not only possible, but already being demonstrated in, in many cases, right? Yeah. I do want to ask one question that's a little bit outside of the scope of what we've been talking about. And one of the things I kind of picked up on in the utopian piece is around this idea of food crops and specifically the idea of rethinking our, our diet and the, the relation with seasonality and incorporating things that are not staples of our foodways that probably should be because they're uh, native and require very little insecticide and pesticide and whatever other things they might need, things like American groundnuts, Jer Jerusalem artichokes, and you know a lot of tree crops that we don't utilize. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like how to change that, I guess you could call it like a diet infrastructure. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> in the, the the visions of the food system to come report, we we talk about some of these issues around diet change, and and of course it is important if we're gonna you know maybe not have exclusively localized food systems, but more localized food systems. You know, we need to think about eating differently, and that's going to be challenging in a context where you know people really prioritize their individual rights uh, as opposed to our, our collective well-being, right? And and their their rights as consumers because <laughs> we're we're kind of taught to be consumers first and foremost, and everything else is secondary in our societies. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, we need to have those conversations in relation to health and people's well-being and the fact that we would have a much more uh, diverse and interesting food system, I think, if we ate more locally. You mentioned uh, Jerusalem artichokes a minute ago, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was uh, at a farm where we were harvesting Jer Jerusalem artichokes. And as I was, you know, helping, you know, with some of this work, I was like, this is why I haven't had Jerusalem artichokes before now, because they're really hard <laughs> to harvest, right? Yeah. And and so we, it's, it's not just about what can grow where or what's local, but we don't even understand what's what's local and possible in some cases, because, you know, the, the systems that are feeding our grocery stores and are, are kind of what appears to be a lot of diversity and abundance. Um, what's actually feeding into those systems is what's easiest for, for keeping labor costs down and, and, and keeping things mechanized on farms and what is, uh, you know, possible in terms of transporting things long distances, right? So we end up having, you know, fairly bland food that is, you know, not very nutritious in terms of the depletion of, uh, you know, the vitamins and nutrients and such in the soils. Um, and so you, you end up having, you know, we have a, a fairly, you know, restricted diet, even for those who can, you know, afford to, to eat pretty well and, and go and buy, you know, organics from the grocery store and such. Um, so I think that, that that's part of kind of this um, educational process and also this kind of governance process if we're talking about having conversations around a utopianism of process. You know, we need to work on these things together and think about localizing food systems um, and more seasonal eating, but also appreciating that culturally, you know, there are people... Uh, you know, who are relying on diverse foods that are quite important to them in terms of their ethnic uh, preferences, right? Um, so, you know, a lot of imported food, 
um, you know, we just we can't grow in Canada or the U.S., especially Canada. So you know, we're, we're, we're restricted because of our shorter growing seasons, the lack of, of heat units and such that, uh, that drive out agriculture um, differently in different places. So we, um, you know, I want to, you know, keep being able to drink coffee, for example, and I don't think we're going to have <laughs> coffee trees growing in, in Canada anytime soon. So, um, you Good know, climate change chance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's some people are optimistic about those things. But, uh, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that it's, it's uh, there's there's a lot of people who will say that, OK, well, uh, we need to make sure that we have more localized food systems, but also food sovereignty doesn't just mean seasonal eating and, and localized food systems. It also means fairer trade um, relationships uh, and making sure that that's not that's organized in ways that are more direct uh, in terms of the relationships. Um, and I know people talk about direct trade uh, specifically, but you know, moving away from, well, say more broadly, moving away from just relying on a fair trade label just like we should be moving away from relying on things like you know organic labels as like a be, a be all and end all kind of solution. Brian, so for folks that have listened to you and want to check out more of your work, do you have a website or is there anything exciting that folks should be on the listen for? Well, I'm continuing to work on on some of these issues and think them through uh, and 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 learn a lot as uh, as we're talking about all of these issues. I mean, I, I realize you know how much I have to learn at the same time as I've been thinking about them already. So, if people want to check out my profile, they can visit the Bishops University website, which is ubishops.ca. I do have a website that is uh, that is starting to get up and running, which is briandale.ca, b-r-y-a-n-d-a-l-e.ca. And I'm on social media if people wanted to, to look me up as well. Brian, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, give us a review, or support us on Patreon. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac.